Hi, folks. Thanks for joining us uh, on this uh, rainy and dark Wednesday night. Uh, we uh, are uh, here for our Wednesday night equip on Bible intake. This is our second to last week. We're in a few minutes going to pick up where we left off last week. I want to get started before we pray uh, and wish all of our veterans, whether you're uh, active duty military or um, you have previously served, whether you're in the room or you're watching this with us live or watching it later, uh, happy Veterans Day to you. Uh, thank you for serving. We're going to recognize uh, veterans on Sunday morning. Uh, it's hard to know when to do it when it falls in the middle of the week, right? Do I do it on the Sunday before or the Sunday after? We're going to do it on the Sunday after this year. So I'm going to do it on Sunday morning. We'll recognize our veterans, but I w- I'd be amiss to uh, not mention that here because we recognize there are people uh, sitting sitting in the room right now who, who are currently uh, active due to mil- military or uh, were at one point, and I'm sure there are some watching online. So thank you so much uh, for your service, and uh, we, are, we appreciate your sacrifice. So I would like to pray for us, and then we're going to really kind of pick up. This is part two of what we started last week. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, that uh, uh, you have provided for us through uh, the sacrifice of, of many men and women great freedoms in our country. And we thank you for those in our congregation and beyond it who uh, still today are willing to uh, sacrifice themselves uh, for that freedom. Uh, Let us not take that for granted, but let us also recognize, God, that that freedom comes from you, Um, uh, that that these rights that we so greatly enjoy, we uh, don't trace back to the invention of man, but to uh, the sovereignty of God. Would that continue to be so? Uh, in our land. Uh, God, would you guard those freedoms so that we may continue uh, to proclaim the gospel, to practice our faith, uh, to love our neighbor, and to send missionaries to the nations. Uh, Would you help us now as we think uh, about um, biblical interpretation again, and as we uh, apply these final two phases, we think about uh, the redemptive narrative of scripture, and we think about the good application of, uh, of texts that we're studying. Would you uh, help us be uh, better students of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let me just quickly uh, go back to uh, last week because this really is part two uh, of uh, what we were dealing with last week. And I introduced uh, to you um, the way that people learn, the way that we process information um, for I really think forever, but the way that um, uh, we've thought about it for the last, uh, you know, 2,000 years or more have been really in three phases, that there's a grammar phase, there's a dialectic phase, there's a rhetoric phase. It's, it's, um, it's information, it's logic, and it's wisdom. And as I challenged you on uh, last Wednesday... If you'll pay attention, and I had a number of you come up to me after service and talk about what I had said the Wednesday night before, uh, after the sermon, um, and I'm going I'm to talk about one thing in particular here in a moment, uh, but that I, I intentionally study scripture that way, and I intentionally present scripture in sermons in that way. Here's what the Bible says, here's what the Bible means, and here's the wisdom that, that we're then to 
to, to apply from it. If you'll remember from last week, we compared it to very simple math, right? I know that one plus one equals two. I can bring that into the physical realm of I have apples and I have two apples because I'm holding two. And then the wisdom realm, do I eat them because I'm hungry? Do I share them with someone else because they're hungry? If I lose an apple, how many apples then do I have, right? And so we, we process information in that, that very way uh, according to that modic classical understanding of of um, education every day. You, you do that without ever thinking about it, but it's, it's helpful to think about that uh, way of information processing as we approach the scriptures um, be, because you'll ask good questions. And so we, we introduced two of four phases last week, the first being the observation phase where we ask, what does the text say? This is where we ask who, what, when, where, and why, and how questions. And then after we ask those questions, we look for uh, what we would say is the main point, right? And it's a, uh, it's a past tense statement. We used Matthew chapter 8 last week. We're going to come back to Matthew chapter 8 this week. And we said the main point of Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 11, was something like Matthew tells us the story of Jesus healing a Gentile centurion servant and using that as an opportunity to teach about faith. That's what the text says. And then the second phase uh, was the responsible interpretation phase. And we have to be responsible with our interpretation because it's, it's scripture, as Peter says in his letter to the church, scripture is not open to one's own interpretation that they didn't invent it and we shouldn't invent meaning either. But our goal should be to apply these lessons that we've learned over the last three months to the text that we've chosen to study uh, in, in asking this question. Okay, well then what does the text mean? And, and there were some processes we looked at last week to get to that. And then we went back again there to Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, the story of Jesus uh, encountering this Roman centurion and, and ultimately healing his servant. And, and, and we talked about the meaning of the text being that, that the gospel is now available by faith to those beyond just um, the, the Jewish people, that, that when we take into account that the healing event before this and the healing event after this, both uh, concerned Jewish, faithful Jewish people, um, that that context leads us to, to an understanding that Jesus is broadening the base of the gospel. And that's going to help us with what we're going to talk about here uh, in, in just a few minutes. So we, we complete those two phases. Really, that's, that's that grammar phase, the information phase, and then the logic or dialectic phase where, where we're going from, okay, what does the text say to then, to then what do the text mean? And if we're doing this correctly, um, then nothing is up for, uh, is really up for debate most of the time that the vast majority of the time you should be able to understand what the text says and what the text means and, and, and that information and logic phase, um, everybody come to, to, to a very, very similar conclusion. Now, you may word it differently. So if I were to have you do this 
on Matthew 8, if I were to have you write all that down, which is if we were in the, doing this in like pre-COVID days of uh, equip, I would have had you do that in the fellowship hall. We would have been around tables and I would have had you do that about a text and we would have all compared with people at our table and we would have figured out who, who had something different. And, but most of them probably, if we apply really good biblical hermeneutics that we've been talking about since September, we, we would all come to very similar, if not uh, somewhat worded differently, um, still very similar conclusions to, okay, this is the information that's in the text and this is the meaning. And the, using that historical grammatical method that we've talked so much about going back to what did the original author say? What is he trying to communicate by placing this text in this place, wording it in this way? Where, 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 do, we, where do we walk away with meaning? There are very few texts, but they do exist where meaning is going to be up for debate. These are going to be texts that are, that are more obscure. They're going to be texts that don't have um, correlations to other books of the Bible that are already addressing that subject in a more clear way. Um, you, you'll find these are going to be maybe 1% or less than 1% of all of Scripture that in the, in the vast majority of the time, we're, we're going to be able to get there uh, on our own. Um, there, there are going to be those cases, and when there are, this is where things like a good study Bible, a good, um, I've, I've made some recommendations for some um, congregational level um, uh, commentaries that aren't necessarily scholarly commentaries where you're going to have to understand Greek or Hebrew, or you're going to need to know um, a whole lot of other information to be able to read them uh, effectively, but, but that you would be able to approach and be able to read. And they may tell you, okay, there's two or three different ways of looking at this from a, from a meaning standpoint. And, 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 and those, those may help you, but for the vast majority of the time, we're going to get there together. And this is, this Matthew 8 is probably one of those. There'd be very few people that would disagree that that is what Matthew 8 says. And that's what Matthew 8 means. So once we've done that, once we've gone through those two stages, those two phases, and we've, we've asked those good questions, and maybe you've written out in your study notes, as I've encouraged you, you're going to take, you know, study the Bible, get, get a piece of paper and have this, you know, get a journal, get something, maybe even a, a Bible that has margins on the side. And, and at least for the first little while, write those things down. Every time you're going to study a new section of scripture, write it down. This is what I think it says in the past tense, who the author is, who the characters are, this is what's happening. And then what does it actually say? What, 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 is it, what does it actually say? And then what does it actually mean? Here's what I think this means. Um, you, you've not, you, this is not devotional yet. It's not application yet. You're not doing anything other than I've, you're developing um, those first two, two phases, information and logic. Now, what we're going to talk about today is that third phase, that wisdom phase. And really, there's, there's two phases in there because it's Bible reading. If this wasn't the Bible, um, then we likely wouldn't have this, this third phase that we're going to talk about. But because this is the Bible, um, we're going to read it somewhat differently than we would read other books um, because this is 66 books. Um, comprised of two testaments, old and new, in one book telling one big story. And we have to ask this question, how does this text relate to the gospel? This is called the redemptive integration phase, if you're writing the phases down. This is when we're wanting to ask questions that, that place this text not within just 
for instance, Matthew 8, 5 through 13, not with just within the context of Matthew 8 or the context of Jesus' post-Sermon on the Mount, which I talked about last week is really the context of Matthew 8, uh, and not even just within the context of Matthew, but where does this text fit within the context of the whole Bible? So I really, I, I would really divide this into two parts and, and, and ask two, I think, good questions about uh, every text that we want to deal with. The first is, where does, this, where does this fit within the story of redemption? So if the whole story of the Bible is that God is redeeming a people for his glory, that's what I say the whole story of the Bible is. You may have a little different version of that, but it's probably something close to that, right? And I, to me, if you boil the whole Bible down to something, it is God is redeeming a people for his glory. That tells the story all the way from Genesis through Revelation. Uh, but yet, obviously, there's, there's a whole lot more to it than that, right? And, and there's this story of redemption that God is telling from Genesis and creation, the fall, the promise that we see to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the exodus, uh, the uh, holy land, the, right? The, 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 um, uh, the taking hold of the promise in the promised land, uh, the, the disobedience of Israel into exile, uh, the return after exile, the coming of Christ, the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, uh, Pentecost, the early church, and revelation, right? That is kind of the phases, if we were to just think like big picture, um, that, the story, that God goes through in the story of redemption. And what we need to ask is, okay, where is, where's this in that story? Because where this is in that story matters for not so much what it's saying, but how we're supposed to think about it. So if this story happens before Abraham, we may think about it a little bit differently than if it happens after Abraham. Because God operates differently before he makes his promise to Abraham and after. After his promise to Abraham, God is nearly exclusively dealing with one particular, particular line of people, this one ethnic group of people. Before that, we see something somewhat different. Is this before the Exodus or after the Exodus? Is this before um, Israel has, takes the promised land. And each one of these would even have in subcategories. Like, is this before there's a king or after there's a king? Is there a good king or a bad king? Has Jesus come? Has Jesus not come? Is, is Jesus alive? Is Jesus um, crucified and, and resurrected? Right? All of those place it within that story. And so then that helps us uh, to know then as we move from what does the text mean then into this wisdom phase, we, we would ask some of those questions to just place it within that broader story. I may, I've, got, I've only got one week left to teach on this subject and then we're going to take a break for the holidays. We'll come back in January. I'm, I'm going to shift gears. We're going to teach on something completely different starting in January. Um, I've only got one week left. I may next week actually talk more about this um, what I may do next week is tell the whole story of scripture to kind of help you in your Bible study to, to put things in, into some of these perspectives. I have a couple ideas of what I may do next week, but that's one of them. But that's kind of the first thing that we do in this redemptive integration phase is that we, we, we put this in its, in, in its specific place, not just within Matthew, but within the whole story that God's telling. And then we ask this, all right, what does this specific account tell me about the gospel? Because 
everything in the Bible tells you about the gospel. You're not going to find a passage of scripture, and you have to look for it a little bit, but you're not going to find a passage of scripture that doesn't tell you something about the gospel. If you understand, if you rightly understand what I mean when I say the gospel. So, I don't know, if you've been coming to equip stuff, and anytime I connect back to the gospel, I always take about three minutes and share this um, because I think it's helpful for us. So, um, when I say it connects to the gospel, I'm meaning every passage of scripture is going to connect to one of these four things. What does the, it's going to connect to, what does the Bible tell us about God? What does the Bible tell us about man? What does the Bible tell us about Jesus? What does the Bible tell us about our response? So, if, if the story is, or if the, the story, the account, the writing, the, the, the sermon, whatever it is that we're reading, right here, it's a, it's, a, it's a narrative event that takes place in the life of Jesus. Does this tell us something about the nature of God? Does, does this increase our understanding about God? If so, then that's its contribution to the gospel. Does this tell us something about the nature of man? Is this highlighting the sinfulness of men? Most often what's highlighted with God is his holiness or one of his other characteristics. Most often what's highlighted in man is the fact that we're not holy and it's highlighting our, our sinfulness. Uh, here in, in Matthew 8, it's, it's highlighting something a little different. We're going to read it here in a minute and recognize it. But is it telling us something about the character of God? Is it telling us something about the sinful nature of man? Is it telling us something about Jesus? Well, if it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John... You can almost take it to the bank that it's telling us something about Jesus, right? He's one of the people in the story. So it's definitely going to be telling us something about Jesus, even though this doesn't direct, may not directly relate to uh, the work of Jesus to bridge the gulf between uh, man and God. Um, but it tells us a little something about that. Or does it tell us something about our, how we respond in faith and repentance? So when I share the gospel with people, I go through those four points. Now, I go through it in a little more detail than I did tonight, just for the sake of time. But I go through those, through those four points, and, and we talk about this is what the Bible says about those four things. And here's what you should do as a good student of Scripture. When you get to this redemptive integration phase, right? you know, what, you know the information, you know what it means. Now you're moving on to this, this wisdom phase you, you, you found its place in the meta narrative of scripture. And then you say, okay, what's this really telling me about, about the gospel? Um, because every, every passage is going to tell us. So let's, let's actually do that. Let's just look, I'm going to read it again. Um, because we read it last week. I'm going to read it again. So look, look with me in Matthew eight, starting verse five, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, um, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, you can make an argument that this, this certainly teaches us something about 
It doesn't necessarily teach us much about the character of God. Uh, many other passages would. This one, not, not so much. But it does teach us something about man. This man recognizes what? He say, what does he say to Jesus? I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. So this passage, at least as, as, a, as a secondary point, teaches us something about the gospel as it relates to man. Because this guy has a right understanding of what? His own failure. We, we could all do maybe with that. I think for anyone to come to a saving relationship with Jesus, what has to happen first is they have to recognize their own need. If one does not need a, recognize their need for a savior, they, they won't ever come to one, right? This man recognizes that he falls short as it relates to comparing his life to Jesus's life. Now, this passage obviously teaches us something about Jesus, that Jesus um, was willing to go beyond just um, the, the relationship that he had with the Jewish people, that this, even this Gentile centurion, he would deal with him, right? So we, we see something about Jesus. And so we have like two secondary points that this teaches us about the gospel. But as I read that, here's what I hope you heard, right? As you, if we kind of study this together, even if we go back to what we say that the text means, what the text says and what the text means, what's, what's highlighted in this text? Faith, right? That's what we've said this text said, that Matthew tells a story about Jesus healing a centurion servant and uses that as an opportunity to teach about faith, Right? Then we said the text means that, that the, the gospel is available through faith to those outside of the Jewish community, to Gentiles. So the, the, while they're secondary, and many texts will have this, some texts will tell us something about all four parts of the gospel. This one has the secondary things. What is it telling us about man? It's telling us a little something about man. What is it telling us about Jesus? All right, it's telling us a little something about Jesus. But it's screaming to us about response. That the only way for us to do what Jesus is saying here, right? Well, look at verse 11. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Right? All right. Well, we want to be doing that. What is that? That's, that's salvation, right? Reclining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's salvation. Well, if I want to do that, how do I do that? Truly, I tell you, no one in Israel I have found with such faith. Then verse 13, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. There's faith. So our redemptive integration phase here, we, we're recognizing the, the place that this is in the meta narrative of scripture that is happening in the midst of Jesus, that Jesus is trying to broaden his people, his disciples, particularly their understanding of who's going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And then we see this this fourth stage of, of the gospel here in that, that Jesus is clearly pointing to the faith of the centurion. Now, this doesn't tell us everything we need to know about faith, does it? No, it doesn't tell us everything we know about faith. There's a lot more we need to know about faith, and the Bible will tell us more about uh, the faith of those who will believe, both Jew and Gentile. But here... Is, is at least an indication that we, we have to recognize if I'm going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is so often talking about, the way that I'm going to do that is not by ethnicity. It's not by good works. It's by belief. 
Okay? So we find the gospel. We find the, where, the, where the story fits in in the gospel. So that's our third phase. Our final phase is implication. This is where we get to application. This is where we get to, we move from then and there to here and now. It, it's, it's where we, we take the text and say, really, the question that I ask about it every week is what? So what? <laughs> so, okay. That's all, that's all well and good. And listen, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of preachers that only ever want to preach about application. They, all, they only ever want to preach about devotional thought, right? Well, if, if we, and which is, by the way, I think how a lot of Christians want to, want to read, read their Bibles, is I want, to, I want to skim through all this other stuff. I'm going to get right to what is it telling me to do? Just, just tell me something to do. You know, this book, I want to read from this book for a second. This is a book called Celebration of Discipline. If you didn't have questions at 615, I was going to read a longer section from this book. Uh, Richard Foster wrote this book back in the 70s. And uh, it's a great book about, um, about Christian discipline. I don't, agree with every, I, I don't agree with everything that's in any book. Uh, there were a few places that I would part ways with Foster, particularly about... He was a little bit more of a mystic, in that, but it's not for today. Uh, but here's what he writes. He said, we must understand, however, that a vast difference exists between the study of Scripture and the devotional reading of Scripture. In the study of Scripture, a high priority is placed upon interpretation, what it means. In the devotional reading of Scripture, a high priority is placed upon application, what it means for me. All too often, people rush to the application stage and bypass the interpretation stage. They want to know what it means for them before they know what it means. Also, we are not seeking spiritual ecstasy in study. In fact, ecstasy can be a hindrance. When we study a book of the Bible, we are seeking to be controlled by the intent of the author. We are determined to hear what he is saying, not what we want him to say. We want life transforming truth, not just good feelings. We are willing to pay the price of barren day after barren day until the meaning is clear. This process revolutionizes our lives. So here's what Foster's saying. If you want to get to really good application of Scripture, you have to do these other phases first. You have to do the really hard work to get to the really good application. And it's going to take time. It's going to take practice. But if we don't do that, if we skim past that, we skim past all of the interpretation, the meaning, what does the text say? What does the text mean? Where do I find the gospel? We skim past all of that because we don't have enough time and we just want the Bible to tell me what to do. Jesus, just tell me what to do, right? We're probably not actually going to get what the Bible wants us to do at all. Because when we, when we jump right to that, let me just be really frank with you. When we jump right to the application phase, and we jump over good, who, what, when, where, why, and how questions, and we jump over context, and we jump over meaning, and we don't think about the historical grammatical method of, of interpretation, when we don't look for the gospel, we just read something, 
and we think we get meaning from it, whose meaning are we really deriving from it? Our own. We're just reading what we want to read. And there are a hundred different ways we could read this text here in Matthew 8 wrong. And, peop- and, and, and we, could, we could read it. Um, and I mean, you, you know, you could read this text. You notice that Jesus doesn't actually go and heal the servant, right? He, he heals him, but he heals him from afar. He says, you go and believe and be done. You know, somebody could read this in the morning and they have a really busy day and here's the application they could take. Well, Jesus multitasked. He did things from afar. And so maybe I need to have a conference call instead of actually going to the meeting. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I hope that sounds ridiculous to you. Because if you've read that text before and been like, oh, look, Jesus didn't go, so I don't need to go either. That is a terrible way of reading the Bible. But it is how we often read the Bible. We often want to go to it, right? And we read it and, you know, you, you, you've heard the story about the guy who was depressed. And so he turns to the Bible to find out and he reads like, you know, Judas hung himself from a tree. And he's like, oh no. So he turns to another place in the Bible and it says, whatever you do, go and do quickly. Well, that's really bad Bible reading, isn't it? And hopefully we're not going to follow those instructions because that wouldn't be what any of that means. But if we're willing to do the really hard work, when we get to this moment, then we could start to ask these two questions. What does this text want me to believe? And what does this text want me to do? But if we've not done the really good work, then we're not going to know the answer to those questions. If we have done the really good work, by the way, this is going to be the easiest thing you do because it's going to come naturally. It's going to flow naturally out of those other things you've already written down. It's going to flow naturally out of those gospel things that you've already seen. What does this want me to believe in and what does this want me to do now? Because the Bible isn't just about things that happened at another time. The Bible is the living, breathing word of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword that cuts deep into bone and marrow. And it's profitable for preaching, teaching, rebuking, correcting, right? Like, this is the Bible. But if, if we're not really willing to put in the hard work, then we're not going to get it. On the other end of that coin is this. There are people that want to do, and there are preachers too, I'm, we're, we're guilty of this, that want to do really good work of exegesis. They want to have a really good hermeneutic. They want to have a really good um, information phase. They want a really good interpretation phase. They, they, they want to do that part really good. And, and, and you, you want to be a really good student of the Bible. But then you never deal with, okay, what am I actually, like there's no life change. There's just, I'm a really good student of the Bible. I've got the, I've got the, the, uh, I got the points down really well. When I have worked with young preachers in the, in the past about, about this, um, you're, you're either going to fall to one extreme for young guys learning how to preach. They're going to fall to one extreme or the other. They're going to only want to tell people what they're supposed to believe or do, or They've seen and heard really good preaching about uh, explaining the text and they want to be that kind of guy. So they do that, but then they never connect with people. Here's, okay, here's what this actually means, which is why every week we ask the question, so what? Because we're, we need to do both, but what we do last needs to, you know, inevitably follow what, we, what we've done 
before. So here's what we're looking for. What, what does this text want us to do? What does this text want us to believe? And maybe it's both. It can be like that, that gospel integration to the redemption and integration phase where we, where we see both. Most often, it's going to be one or the other, but you, you, can, very, you can very often find, find both. And, and we can go to the text then and, and say, okay, what, is this, what does this mean for me? Because it does mean something for you. This is the word of God shining that light into your life. So let's go back then to Matthew 7. I'm going to read it again. This is our fourth time to read through it. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appearing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the son of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, information, we already know. Matthew tells us the story of Jesus and his interaction with the centurion about healing a servant and uses that as an opportunity to teach about faith. Right? Meaning, we know, right? That the gospel through faith is available to not only the Jew, but to the Gentile. So we take those, that hard, good work that we've already done, we think about our gospel integration, we think, okay, this is, this is clear that this is teaching us about our response. So the application's easy, right? You know what the application is. The application is to look in your own life and ask this question. Am I relying on any other form of salvation outside of faith in Jesus Christ alone? If I was preaching this text, folks, that is very close, at least 90, 95% of exactly what my so what would be. And you see how I got there, right? We looked at what the text said. We looked at what the text meant. We connected the gospel to it. And then we just said, okay, based off of all of that, what am I supposed to believe or do? Now, Jesus isn't really telling us to do anything unless what we need to do is in response to that introspection, right? I look inside my life and I see, wait, I have been as many of the people in Jesus's audience were, Many of the people in Jesus' audience probably were very offended by what he said here because they were thinking they would get to recline at the table in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob based off of their ethnicity or based off of their works. And Jesus said, no, it's not based off that at all. It's based off of faith. So we ask that question of ourselves and we say, okay, am I basing my salvation off of any kind of Anything other than faith? So is it based off of ethnicity? Is it based off of church attendance? Is it based off of my mama was good? Is it, you know, what's it based off of? If the answer to that is yes, then we do have a do, right? What's our do? Come to faith in Jesus, believing in him alone for the salvation, for your salvation so that you may be saved. But for you, for students of the Bible who are already redeemed, Right? There's not really a do here. And, and this is the trap that many Christians want to fall into. We want to force a do into every text of the scripture. We think somehow every text of the scripture is telling us to do something. 
Every text of the scripture is not telling you to do something. It's telling you to do something here if you've not come to faith in Jesus. But if you have come to faith in Jesus and that is all you're relying on, then here's what it's doing. It's reaffirming that belief. So very often what the text is doing is it's, it's not telling us to believe something new, but reaffirming a belief that we've already held. I would imagine most of the time on Sunday mornings when I'm preaching, you may glean some new information. I may reveal something to you about the context that you didn't know or about the original language that you didn't know, or I may make a connection to another part of scripture that you didn't see was there before. And hopefully you, you get those things. But when we get to, so what? And particularly when we're dealing with a so what about a a belief, so what? If you've been walking with the Lord, like I'm just looking around this room, many of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. If you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, I'm probably not giving you a whole lot of new beliefs, right? I'm not telling you to believe something you're like, man, I've never believed that before. Like that's brand new information. That probably doesn't happen much. It may happen occasionally, but it probably doesn't happen very often. And that's good. And it doesn't mean that the sermon was a waste for you. Like if you get in your car and you're like, I didn't learn anything today. Really? Like the, the text didn't speak to you at all? That's not the preacher's fault. If the preacher preached the text, that's on you, right? Because it may not be that you, you, you may not have developed some new belief, but certainly you should have been reaffirmed in your belief. And I use this as an example, right? I told you I was going to pull back the curtain on how I preach because it's helping, going to help you in how you study. So when you go to the text every morning or every evening, whenever it is you're studying God's word and you're doing this hard work and you're going through these phases and you do all this, you're like, I didn't learn anything new today. This didn't work. Uh, Maybe it did work. Maybe it just reaffirmed what you already knew to be true. Because how many passages in the scripture are going to tell us that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone? A bunch of them, right? A bunch of them. Because that is a central truth to the New Testament. That salvation is found in faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it's central because it's talked about a lot. Jesus talks about it a lot. The apostles talk about it a lot. Faith in Christ alone for salvation is is key to understanding the New Testament. And so you're going to read a lot of text that tell you something that you already knew. But here's what you do. You just, you use that as a reaffirmation. Now use it as as, as a moment of introspection and make sure and look, right? Test your faith. That's what Paul writes. Paul says, test your faith. Make sure that you're in the faith. And, and so you could do that. You look, at, look at your life and say, okay, am, have I really believed this? And that may not take, you know, half a second. Go, absolutely, I believe this. Absolutely, this is, this is true. So if it is, then you believe it and you reaffirm it and you're glad for it. And then the next day you move on to something else and maybe it deals with, deals with something else. So here's what we're going to do. I've got 20 minutes left. We're going to try something. I want somebody, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put a caveat on it. It may get difficult. We'll see. Somebody name a passage of scripture and we're going to go through all four together in 20 minutes or less. Give me a passage. The reason I didn't pick it, I just want to prove that you can do this. 
Matthew 5. Oh, we only have to change like one page, right? 17. You pick something in the Sermon on the Mount, which is going to be fun. Okay. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Okay. It's just one page over. Thank you for that. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Good one, right? All right. So we're going to start with information. Who wrote this? Matthew. Who is he writing about? Jesus. Where is this? This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is in Galilee. This is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon in the New Testament. Um, it would, it's going to be really helpful to have already read the Beatitudes when, when we get to this. Uh, it, it's probably going to have been helpful to have read all seven chapters because some of what Jesus describes here, he goes on and he starts saying after this, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, but I tell you, right? He does that for about a chapter and a half in here. So we get some illustration of what Jesus is talking about, I, I, I think, Okay. Uh, Who's he talking to? He's primarily talking to his disciples, we're told. But there's also a crowd, right? He went on the mountain and went and sat down. His disciples came to him. So he's he's got his disciples that he's teaching, but there's other people listening in. So he's talking for their their benefit too, all right? So I I can just quickly, I can say, all right, the information that's contained here is Matthew tells of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, talking about, Um, the relationship of the law and the prophets and his ministry proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. That's the relationship here, all right? Because it's clear he's talking about the law and the prophets and he's talking about his relationship to them. Because how does it start off? I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And then he reiterates, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, right? Then he goes on and and explains further, right? Not one dot or iota, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So again, he's talking more about his work. Um, so, it, so it's clear what Jesus is talking about here is his relationship, the, the relationship between Old Testament covenant, law and prophets, which law and the prophets was their way of saying the old covenant, right? And Jesus's ministry in proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. So that's what the text says, all right? Now, what does the text mean? We're, we're, you know, we're, we're going to move to this, we're going to move to this next phase where we're, where we're asking this question, how does this fit within the context of the book? Well, to ask that about this, we have to really know the context of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is presenting kingdom ethic, where Jesus is presenting, here, here's what, this is what, this, this is what the Beatitudes, this is why the Beatitudes are so important to the, to the Sermon on the Mount, because they really introduce this they, don't they seem strange to us from an earthly perspective? The Beatitudes just seem, seem really out of place. And they should because Jesus is presenting to us something that is not earthly, but it's something that is of the kingdom of heaven. He's presenting what's known as a kingdom ethic. 
that this is how, if we're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, we're going to live in a way that is opposite of the world. And then so Jesus is going to go from that to talking about you have to be different from the world. He talks about salt and light for a minute. Um, and then he talks about this relationship between his ministry and, and, and um, the Old Testament. And then he can give all these examples, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, uh, enemies, giving to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, your relationship between money, right? All of this is all about how the, 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 the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is proclaiming changes everything about us. So that's the, that's the immediate context, all right? So we go from Matthew tells us about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, preaching about his relationship, the, the relationship of the Old Testament to his ministry, right? So what does it mean? The text means really, in, it, there's really kind of two parts to this. The first is the relationship of Jesus, that what Jesus is proclaiming and the Old Testament, and then our place in it. That's really where it ends, right? Because it, it says, for, great, for I tell you, unless you your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus turns it then on us. So you really have, really have two parts to this. And I would be able to wordsmith this a little better if I wasn't doing it on the spot. But, but the, meaning, the meaning of this is that Jesus has come to fulfill everything that has already been written and that we have to find a righteousness that is greater than that of those who are still believing in the old way, that the, that the new kingdom of heaven, this new kingdom that Jesus is preaching is going to demand a righteousness greater than the old one. All right. So we kind of meaning where's the gospel in this? Well, this is definitely teaching us about Jesus. This is telling us that Jesus is bridging a gap here, that Jesus is bringing in something new, that what God was doing was leading to this, and now this is a moment. So I definitely think for gospel integration, we're seeing uh, what, what the Bible is teaching us about Jesus, is that Jesus is, is introducing, Jesus is now doing something that everything else was leading up to. But it's also teaching us something about man, and it's saying that we, we can't do this on our own. Which, by the way, is kind of the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Like, you read through that and you're like, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. You can't do this on your own, right? I've got to have, Jesus is talking to regular people and he says, you've got to have righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees. They all heard that and went, nope, can't do that. So this teaches us something from the gospel perspective. It teaches us something about Jesus. Um, but it also teaches us something about man that we're completely unable all right, so this is what it's saying. It's telling us that there, is a rela- that there is this fulfillment that's coming in Jesus and that that fulfillment is going to require a greater righteousness than the previous. But what does that mean for us? Well, what that means for us is that righteousness has to be found in some other place. I think the key to this is, for I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, when we think about this in the meta narrative of Scripture, what do we know? What does Jesus do? Jesus accomplishes his work, right? Jesus fulfills this 
for us. Jesus was the perfect keeper of the law. He was the perfect fulfillment of all of the prophets. He was the one who hung on the cross and says, it is finished. What was finished? His mission to to inaugurate the kingdom of God. So for us, if you're banking on righteousness, which I think is what the rest, again, of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is telling us, if you're banking on your own righteousness, you're going to fail. And, and Jesus, would, he is going to show you that, right? He's going to show you that with anger. He's going to say, you, you know, you, you shall not murder. And they all went, oh, I had never murdered. And Jesus says, well, if you hate somebody, you've murdered them. Jesus is going to say, don't commit adultery. Oh, I've never committed adultery. Well, if you lust after a woman in your, in your, in your heart, you've, you've committed adultery. Right? Jesus does this time and again here in the Sermon on the Mount to show what? We can't ever do it. But he was the, he was the perfect one who was fulfilled all, who kept all the law, fulfilled all the prophets, and accomplished a work in our place that we could never accomplish. That only took nine minutes. <laughs> so now, if I'm preaching that, Josh, obviously I'm going into a lot more detail. There is more detail, okay? There, there, is, there is certainly more, and you could do some really good study on, I, mean, I, I, I have told you, you, a good study Bible a good commentary that, that's one you can understand uh, is going to help you more understand what he's saying there with the law and the prophets. What does an iota and a dot actually mean? It's talking about the, the Hebrew way of writing. Um, so so there's, there's more to dig there. But as you dig, I promise you, you're not going to get beyond these, these simple truths, right? And then, and then this, this, applic- this personal application of saying, am I banking on my own righteousness? It's similar to, to, to eight, which I told you last week, those healing accounts point back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Is it your righteousness or is it, or is it Christ's righteousness? That's what we're going to do. Y'all want to do it again? I did that in 10 minutes. Somebody else have another one? It should take you more than 10 minutes. It would take me. If I was studying that, like really studying it, I'm just kind of walking you through the steps and showing you how to do it. Somebody else said something when Josh said his. Romans 8. All of it? Romans 8 what? Goodness gracious. Romans 8. I, so there's now, so there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. Um. Like the end of it, 37 through 39, where are you want to look? 31 through 39, that's probably what I would study. Yeah, I'd probably study 31. All right. All right. So what then shall we say to these things? Stop there. Stop there. Yes. Because Romans 8 is, is a is the culmination of Romans 1 through 7, <laughs> all right? Which is something that I warned you about, all right? That you need to pick a book and you study it all the way through. Because if you don't know what Romans 1 through 7 are all about, then you're, then you're going to be wrong about Romans 8, all right? I do know what Romans 1 through 7 are about, though. Um, the first section of Romans is, is showing you that you, you're, you are a sinner. You are promise you, right? That's, that's what Paul says, just over and over. I don't care who you are, you're a sinner. Jew, Greek, you're a sinner. 
Sodom, Gomorrah, he deals with all of this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you're all sinners. Jesus has saved you, all right? Then you get to Romans 8, and it begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So if you're in Jesus, that sin no longer applies. So he's getting to this, he's getting this climax, all right? So then we'll, we would just deal with, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will we also, uh, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who intended in, intercedes for us. Uh, who indeed, indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we were being killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to being slaughtered. No, in all things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is talking about position. So the, right, the who, what went Paul's writing to Romans, you know, Gentile Christians really explain, it went mixture, Jews and Gentiles, explaining to them the, the full force of the gospel. And then we get to this point, he's, he's explaining their position. Because everything else is true, here's who you are in Jesus. That's what this is saying. Because all of that is true. Here's, here's who you are in, in Jesus, right? So who are we in Jesus, right? We are, there's, there's kind of a negative and a positive. But even the negative is good, right? So don't think, but, but the negative is th- there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So you're, you cannot be condemned. That's the negative. You can't be condemned. What's the positive, right? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You are in him fully affixed. There is no condemnation. There is only presence. Now, what's this teaching about the gospel? It's teaching us really about our place, right? That when we respond in faith and repentance, that God fully saves us and saves us to the point where no accusation against us would, would cause him to, would cause us to lose that place. And, and, and we now have the rights and the privileges of one who has conquered for us. Nothing would separate us from him. From, from him. And then again, this is a belief. We've not really gotten much in the do section. There's lots of do's, but we've dealt with three beliefs, right? Do you believe who you are in Christ? A great, like, do you read this and think this is true? Because I think that's a great question for Christians. Christians so often want to deal, like, like we, we walk around as if we're still under condemnation. We walk around as if we're not being held in the hand of the one who loves us and who conquers all things so that we might be with him and that there's nothing in this world that could ever separate us from him. Right, there's this great joy, this great crescendo that Paul reaches in. Thanks for not picking chapter nine, by the way. Um, this great crescendo that Paul reaches with um, Romans eight at the end. At the end of Romans eight, is that is that true? Of, like, do you 
do you really operate like that? So I think there is kind of a do here. Like live your life as if you're one who is no longer under condemnation. Live an obedient life to Christ, recognizing that you are secure in him. There's some good stuff there. Then again, you could take days and pour over just those, what, 10 verse, nine verses? You could take days and pour over that. Finding what, finding, you know, what does it say? What does it mean? Where's the gospel? Um, that would certainly be just one sermon. Maybe two. <laughs> probably just one. I would probably preach 31 through 39 together. So, um, but you can do this. You can do this with any text in the scripture. You ought to really name hard ones, right? Uh, but you, you, you could do this if, if, you'll, if you'll ask good questions and apply good principles. All right, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. Um, just these things that we've read. The gospel is available to Gentiles. You're the fulfillment of the uh, law and the prophets and that your righteousness alone is the greater righteousness that is beyond the scribes and the Pharisees and you impart that righteousness to us. And when you do, God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in you and nothing can separate us. There is no power on he- in heaven or in earth or under the earth that could ever separate us from the love of God to the glory of God. Thank you for those truths. Thank you that we find those in your scriptures. Help us to be good students of your word as we grow in grace and grow in our faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you those that joined us online. We have one more week. We'll be live again next week before we break from Thanksgiving to Christmas.